What is the secret of Halo? New Capenna. In the year 2022, nothing runs anymore, nothing works, but the people are the same. And the people will do anything to get what they need. This is the police! What they need most is... Halo. Halo. Has been exhausted. What is the secret of Halo? Detective Sergeant Thorne. He has a two-year backlog of unsolved murders. Now he's on a case that must be solved. Saul Roth, Thorne's private library. Hey, Saul. A living book in a world without books. Have some pencils. Courtesy of your next assignment. William R. Simonson. Simonson. He was the first to learn the secret of Halo. They told me to, uh, to say that they were sorry, but that you had become unreliable. <laughs> Saul Roth was the next to know. How do we come to this? And he chose to die, rather than reveal the secret of Halo. What is the secret of Halo? <clears throat> Why did you set up Simonson? I didn't. Cheryl. I see your hands. Officially, she's furniture. She comes with the apartment. She belongs to the tenant. How many times you've been in trouble with the police, Cheryl? Never. Can't hear you. Never. Captain Hatcher. First, he wanted this case solved. Simonson. What do you say? It was an assassination. Now, he just wants it closed. Who bought you? High and hot. And they want this case closed permanently. Their way. Now, you sign this. You sign it! Dorn refuses to close the Simonson case. Just do what you have to do. Where did you go with Simonson? He took me to church. Church. Bless me, Father, for I have sinned. It has been six months since my last confession. Charlton Heston, Edward G. Robinson, Chuck Connors, Lee Taylor Young, Brock Peters, Paula Kelly, and Joseph Cotton. Fight for survival and try to solve the most bizarre riddle ever to face mankind. The search for the secret of Halo. You will find out why Halo means life. You will find out why Halo means death. We've got to stop them! What is the secret of Halo? Please! Spoiler alert, Halo is made of angels. It is angel juice. Hello and welcome to Lucky Paper Radio. My name is Andy and I'm... Do I say my name is Andy? Do I say I'm your host, Andy? <laughs> Weird. I'm like second guessing myself. Who Who are you? I'm Andy and I'm here with my co-host. It feels weird to say if I didn't say I was the host. Anyway, I'm here with my co-host, Anthony Banana Hater Maddox. Have I used that name before? I, I couldn't tell you. 
And you hate both the flavor and the texture of a banana. Yeah, I don't love bananas. They're they're not they're not tasty. It's not a good fruit. You know, I feel like uh, you and I both eat pretty much everything. Mm-hmm. What's banana to you is coconut to me. I just can't do coconut. I like coconut as an ingredient in a curry, like a base for a sauce or something. The texture of raw coconut, especially if it's mixed into a batter, oh, can't handle that. So disgusting. I, okay, I see a little bit with the texture. It has a sort of like almost like styrofoamy. I, I can see why that would not appeal to you. The it's, flavor though is so good. It's a combination of both. I actually also don't like the flavor if it's sweet. I like it if it's savory, but if it's sweet, I don't like it. And it depends on how much it tastes of coconut, whether or not I can stand a sweet treat with coconut in it. I mean, let's be honest, just savory is better. I don't like bananas, uh, but that's a, a, a delicious savory plantain, that's that's delightful. Plantains don't really taste like bananas at all. Yeah, They're very different. I occasionally get fancy snacks delivered from Japan. Hillary got me a nice little Japanese snack box for Christmas this year. And one thing in the snack box for this month or whatever period it is, is these little banana chocolate cookie things. It's hard to describe. Japan really has its snack game on lock. Some really fantastic snacks coming out of that country. And also like very odd combinations of flavor. I, I shouldn't say odd necessarily. Maybe it's not odd if you're in Japan. For, for my palate, some very novel combinations of flavors and textures. And these banana little wafers, I think, are pretty interesting. I have one I saved. Maybe you want to taste it. Or if you think you're going to hate it, then don't bother. I mean, look, some people are... are- picky about foods and they're just like nope i don't like this won't try it i will try basically anything even if i think i won't like it that's the only way you grow on this week's episode of lucky paper radio we are diving into part two of our streets of new capenna set review this is the personal cube editions episode so anthony and i have gone through our own cubes that we are currently actively curating and picked out the cards we're interested in testing so we're going to talk about those in the context of our specific cube environments Also, by the time this episode comes out, our set review survey is going to be up. So check out luckypaper.co slash survey slash SNC. That's it, SNC. Or check out the show notes for a link and tell us what you are going to be testing from this set in your own cubes. Also, Anthony, that's just the best way to get us to talk about a card on the show. If you want to hear our take on a card, you got to go and say you're going to test it in your cube. You got to get a lot of other people to submit their own survey saying they're going to test it because part three of our new Capenna set review is going to be an episode we dedicated to the top cards that are being tested by the community at large. So tune in for that in a few weeks. It's going to be a minute. So Anthony, I have three cubes I've done additions for. You sounds like you mostly have two, maybe a, maybe a little like bonus. Yeah, two and a bonus. That's a good way to put it. All right. Well, if I've got three, I'll start first. Then we can alternate. You know, cubes going down the line. I gotta say, overall, not as many cards in this set that I'm interested in testing in my own cubes for a variety of reasons. Even though we talked about on the mechanics episode. The mechanics, I think, are great and very flexible, and I was looking for more of the Blitz cards and more of the Casualty cards and excited to find ones that fit in my cube, but for other reasons, I didn't find that many that actually felt like they'd be a decent fit. I'm going to start with the Bun Magic Cube. This is my primary cube. It is a vintage, unpowered cube, and it also avoids any unfair strategies or strategies I deem unfair, which basically means that I want every deck to care about like the tempo value axis, and to me, combo decks kind of just drive right across those tempo value lines and say, I don't care what happened up in the game at this point. I'm just going to do my Splinter Twin combo or whatever and then win the game. So all the decks, aggro, mid-range control, all the sort of variations of them really care about that tempo and value axis. And I would say it's a medium synergistic environment. Synergy is not the driving factor behind the, the cards that are included in the environment. So I don't have specific archetypes for color pairs or anything. I'm mostly looking for flexible cards that work in lots of different decks so that my drafters have full 
autonomy and combining them in whatever ways they see fit. I guess the last thing I should say is that it is a very low curving environment. I really like cheap spells. I don't like having cards stuck in hand I can't cast. I like giving my players lots of sequencing decisions. And so for that reason, uh, I've, I've kind of discovered that, you know, when you're going through a new set to like evaluate it for potential cube inclusions, I feel like some people that have powerful cubes maybe look at the rares and mythics first and are likely to overlook any commons or uncommons. For me, I'm likely to overlook anything that costs four mana or more. I'm just like kind of breezing right over those ones when I'm going through the set review. I'm like, there's nothing that can, this card could possibly say that's an uncommon at four and a blue that it's going to be vi- viable in my environment. It just can't happen. Yeah, I'm, I'm the same. And after following along with the previews, uh, you know, I did a more thorough review of the set and looked through every card. And I actually just sort the cards by mana cost because I, like you, I'm much more likely to be interested yeah. in the cheap spells. So uh, it's a good way just to sort of, you know, e- even if I'm looking at every card, we can go a little quicker through the seven mana spells. I only have three cards for the Bun Magic Cube that I am like optimistic about in terms of their staying power in the environment. But I got to do a little shout out. So I mentioned on our mechanics episode that I was really hoping to find a three color card so I could put this beautiful three color like gilded frame in my cube. And none of them are super exciting to me. I have two honorable mentions, which are the three color cards that are closest to making it in my cube. And I wouldn't be surprised if they maybe make it in the future. The first is Broker's Ascendancy. This is green, white, blue. So three mana for an enchantment. Pretty simple. It just says at the beginning of your end step, put a plus one, plus one counter on each creature you control and a loyalty counter on each planeswalker you control. I think this is a powerful effect and it will be played in most decks that are combination of green, white, and blue in my environment. Like if you can cast this card, your deck probably would be happy to play it. The thing I don't love about this card is that it's just kind of, it doesn't offer any decisions. You cast it whenever you can. And then if you have a board, it'll keep getting bigger. If you have planeswalkers, it'll keep ticking up. But it's like snowballing incarnate, right? And there are going to be times where it's useless, where you have an empty board or your opponent's removing your threats, and then you wish this enchantment was just another threat. And the times where it's not useless, it's just going to kind of get bigger and bigger and snowball out of control. So we've talked before about how it's very interesting to be able to put plus one, plus one counters on creatures and augment them, and which kind of changes the way they play, you know, with cards that care about their power or have keyword abilities, you know, a plus one, plus one counter can be a lot more than just plus one to power and toughness. But here, not even giving you the choice, right, of like, which card you put it on, just putting on all of them blindly, it's not the most exciting card to me. So I think it might be there on power level. I don't love the play patterns, but again, I was scraping for a three-color card so I could maybe put one of these beautiful gilded frames in my cube. Yeah, I'm with you. I think it is definitely powerful, but those two big key things you mentioned, the fact that it is extremely high ceiling but extremely low floor, if you don't have any creatures or planeswalkers, this does nothing, is not super appealing to me. And the fact that it just doesn't really offer decisions. You just want to get this in play as soon as possible uh, and just, you know, let it get out of control. Yeah, like by comparison, I have really come to love Luminarch Aspirant. And that card is interesting to me because it does give you the decision of like, which creature are you going to grow every turn, right? When I first saw that card, I thought it would play like I'm currently expecting Broker's Ascendancy to play, where it's like, okay, great, a big dumb guy that just gets bigger and bigger. But I found it really interesting and dynamic to decide, you know, how much you're going to spread those counters out versus put them on the highest valuable creature that has the best keyword. Putting them on other creatures other than Luminarch Aspirant is usually the best decision because then the Aspirant itself is not a major board presence. So if your opponent's going to spend a removal spell on the Aspirant, they're only getting rid of a 1-1 or something. So it actually, I think it's played very interestingly and leads to very cool decisions. And I don't see that for Broker's Ascendancy. So maybe, maybe it'll get there, but I'm skeptical. That one gets a 1 on my survey for sure. Better to try it than uh, just write it off, but I agree. The other three-color card that is at least piquing my interest is Ginny Faye Jet Mirrors Second. 
This is from that cycle of cards that have really interesting mana costs that are hard to explain out loud on air. And this card's mana cost, it's three total mana, and it's a green, and then a hybrid red green, and a hybrid green white. So it can either be green, 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 or you can spend up to one red or one white in that as well. Yeah, so it's basically a mono green card, or a Selesnia card, or a Gruul card, or a Naya card. And that flexibility I really like. I actually really like these mana costs. I wish some of the actual cards were a better fit for my environment. This one's kind of close. This is a 3-3. It's a legendary creature, Elf Druid. And it says, if you would create one or more tokens, you may instead create that many 2-2 green cat creature tokens with haste or that many 3-1 green dog creature tokens with vigilance. So it's got this replacement ability that turns any token, if you want, into instead... Two twos with haste or three ones with vigilance. And it doesn't say creature, right? So if you make a bunch of treasures or any other kind of like little dinky tokens, those yep. can turn into creatures too, right? Yeah, you could turn any token into creatures. And like I said, I don't think of my cube in a synergistic way. So I don't have what I would call a tokens strategy in my environment. It's not something I think about in terms of the lens I look at my cube at. But I do incidentally have a fair number of cards that create tokens. And I'm interested in whether or not this card would cause people to draft very differently and perhaps put together a new kind of deck they wouldn't otherwise draft from my environment when they're actually looking for this effect. And I do also have a couple of ways to kind of tutor creatures. I have Green Sun Zenith, so you can get Green Sun Zenith, get this card, maybe get a Once Upon a Time. That to me is enough redundancy that I would be willing to actually draft cards with the expectation that they're only good really if Ginny Fey is around. So that's the other one I'm looking at. And I'm a little more optimistic about that one because at least, you know, Broker's Ascendancy, I think, is powerful enough. I just kind of don't think I'm going to like the play patterns, and I would be surprised if I'm evaluating these play patterns incorrectly. Ginny Fey, I don't know if it's powerful enough, but if it is, it's going to be really cool and interesting, I think. So that one I'm a little more optimistic about, but still not thrilled. I'm curious about it. It's obviously, you know, a great combo with Puppet Conjurer, which everyone else is looking out for. Honestly, the biggest downside on this card to me, two more unique tokens to keep track of in the game. Yeah, and that is a genuine downside. <laughs> it's kind of annoying. I think we're going to have a long conversation about this next one, Anthony. Sticky Fingers. This is one red mana for an enchantment aura. It enchants creatures, and it says enchanted creature has menace, and whenever this creature deals combat damage to a player, create a treasure token, and when the enchanted creature dies, draw a card. This is a very interesting card to me, and I do not really know how to evaluate it, but my first impression was this is a lot of different stuff for a one mana card to do. And for that reason, I'm interested in testing it to see to see how it plays. I'm really curious to know what you think of this card before I blabber on about why I think it has potential. It's such a weird little card. Like, it does nothing. <laughs> you put it on your creature, you're not really getting any immediate benefit. But it kind of both pays you back for the card and the mana. Uh, is, it, is it a ramp spell? Is it something that maybe you just end up, like, cycling by putting it on some random creature and attacking? I guess it does grant menace as well, which is pretty think, relevant. That might something. that might be the key point here. Yeah, I would I would definitely it, not say it does nothing. Like I think menace, especially when you get to choose which of your creatures you put menace on, it can really make blocks very tricky for your opponent. True. Yeah. I actually, I mean, I just love menace as a mechanic, so that's kind of pushing my interest a little bit towards this. Menace is for sure the best menace-like <laughs> mechanic they've ever done of fear and intimidate and uh, all the other, there's a bunch of other mechanics that are similar to menace. Menace is by far the most elegant one. I do like the mechanic a lot. So, I mean, obviously we should just say this card's got a terrible floor, right? If you have no creatures in play, it does nothing. If you go to put it on a creature and your opponent bounces or removes the creature you're targeting, then it also does nothing. Though I will say in that second case, you only spend a mana. 
It's not like it's a more expensive combat trick. And also, I expect mostly to kind of be putting this on my dickier creatures. Like, I don't know how much I'm going to be putting this on a high-value creature. Obviously, it will depend on the board state and what I think my opponent has in their hand. But to me, this seems like a way to kind of upgrade a creature that I expect to be disposable. Because I do eventually want this to die to get my card back to be happy playing Sticky Fingers, I think. So, all that said, it's an aura. Aura is bad if you don't have a creature to put it on. And I do think that decks can only run a limited number of these kinds of cards. I would put equipment in the same bin, at least equipment that don't make creature tokens when the ETB or whatever. I think a lot of vehicles are in the same category where if you don't have a creature, if you don't do anything. So if you have cards that require creatures to be effective, but are not creatures themselves or do not make tokens, there's like only a few of those I'm happy to have in any deck. And this is going to be competing with all those other cards for those slots. The ceiling on this, I think, is really, really high. Indulge me a little bit in some Christmas land thinking. Turn one, you play any one drop in your red aggro deck. Doesn't really matter which one. Let's say you're on the play to make it a little more elegant. Whatever your opponent does, unless it's remove your one drop. Turn two, if you put sticky fingers on it, they're not going to be able to block. There's no way in my environment to make two blockers on one mana. It's not possible. So you're going to get in for sure with damage, which means you're also going to get that treasure token, which means that you kind of didn't pay any mana for sticky fingers, right? You can now still play a two drop on turn two or play two more one drops. You can do whatever your aggro deck was already going to do, and Sticky Fingers just got in there kind of for free. It does cost a card, which is very relevant. And as terms of card equity, the card value here is very low. Ultimately, Sticky Fingers does not do a whole lot. It does maybe eventually replace itself, which is the saving grace of that, right? If this didn't have the, you know, when the creature dies, draw a card on it, then it would be truly awful, I think. But the fact that it does maybe eventually replace itself, I think, makes it a little bit interesting. And that ability, too, I also think is going to make combat interesting, because I think a trigger of getting a treasure every time you hit your opponent is a really powerful ability. It'll fix your mana. You know, if you get stuck on a particular color, it'll just solve that problem immediately. It also allows you to like, in this Christmas land scenario I'm describing, you hit on turn two. Maybe you don't then play a two drop. Maybe you keep that treasure around and on turn three, hit again and just spend five mana worth of spells on turn three in a deck with no ramp, right? No ramp in big air quotes. Unless we're calling Sticky Fingers ramp. That's a really powerful potential, I think, that is potentially worth a card, that, like, tempo boost. So I really don't know how to evaluate this. I will say that, like, the CEDH subreddit is, like, excited about this card, which I never would have expected. I don't know that much about the CEDH metagame, but they're like, this card seems like it's going to be a new staple, almost, in red for certain kinds of decks, which is unexpected to me. But that is, I think, a data point which is worth knowing. And it's also just a weird combination of effects that I don't think there's any real analogous card we can compare it to. We were talking on the Discord earlier, and the closest we got to a comparison was like Crash Through, which is just that sorcery cantrip that gives your creatures trample in red. So one red mana, creatures get trampled to end of turn, and you draw a card. This does a lot more than that, I think, which makes it much more appealing to me. I'm not optimistic in my ability to evaluate the power level of this card, but if it is good, this is the kind of thing I would love to add to my environment to add a little more depth to how things play and a little more complexity on board so that you're making these decisions about which creature you're going to put sticky fingers on, how your opponent's going to block. They don't want to give you the card back. So if you're the beatdown, now they have to either face a treasure every single turn or face you drawing a card. And I know that historically, cards that give you an opponent options tend to play a lot worse than a lot of players expect. If you look at your Vexing Devil kind of card, a lot of people are like, well, both these options are really good for the mana, so it doesn't matter what my opponent chooses because both sides are really efficient. But it actually does matter, right? Like the fact that they get that choice means that they can dramatically decrease the value of that card. So that is something to be aware of, but 
I don't know. It's just a really weird card and uh, kind of a weird, innocuous little common that I think a lot of people are overlooking, but I'm definitely interested in trying, even in my very powerful environment. So here's a question. You said the floor is you have no creatures, you can't do anything with it. Yeah. You can cast this on your opponent's creatures, but then they will still get the treasures, right? Because it's not the effect of Sticky Fingers, which you would still own. The effect is granted to the creature, so that's not really an option, right? Yes. You would draw the card when the creature dies. Right. Because of the way that car- the rule text is actually written, but you would not get the treasure token itself. So, like, the you best could case scenario is you have, and like, then just you have it, no creatures, but yeah, you have a removal spell and uh, sticky fingers. You can cycle it <laughs> with some steps in between. Yeah. I mean, that's an edge case. I do think this card is going to have a long tail of weird edge cases, right? Like I said, fixing your mana when you need to fix your mana. Just weird stuff that you don't expect, like that is maybe potentially going to come up. And there's not other cards that can have that weird long tail of applications at this mana cost in this color. So I'm really uncertain about it, but it's the right mana cost for me. One, (laughs) I love one mana spells, and it definitely adds a new dimension to my red section. So I am going to try it out with interest. My next card is Unlicensed Hearse. It's two mana for an artifact vehicle. It has tap, exile up to two target cards from a single graveyard, and Unlicensed Hearse's power and toughness are each equal to the number of cards exiled with it and crew two. I think this card is really cool. Like just a really cool design space where on its face, it kind of plays like a Scrabbling Claws-esque. We've got many variations of these dinky little artifacts that just kind of exile cards from graveyard and have additional utility. And in the case of Scrabbling Claws, additional utilities, you can just cycle to draw a card. That's what the utility is for a lot of them, right? The Soul Guide right. Lantern and Relic of Progenitus, they're like, this is a conditional effect that if you don't need it, you can just kind of cycle it away. Here, the conditional effect is you have a vehicle that you can crew and, and beat face with, which I think is, is very interesting. Graveyards have gotten more and more relevant in my environment. I think more and more decks rely on having cards in the graveyard for some reason, whether it's their future Delve spells or their Tarmogoyfs or their Dragon's Rage Channelers or whatever. And so I feel like in most matchups, you can be pretty happy to chew through your opponent's yard and then... Even if the cards you're exiling are not relevant from their graveyard, the fact that you can just make this thing into a pretty big vehicle is pretty appealing to me. So what are you actually valuing here? Is it having a big threat? Is it this like very specific graveyard hate? Or is it like really the whole package? And I guess also, do you see this as being mostly a sideboard card in your environment? I see it as the whole package. I, I would not be interested in either half of this alone. I mean, I think, frankly, I think a Scrabbling Claws or Soul Guide Lantern card would actually be totally viable in my environment. It doesn't spark joy for me. It maybe would if I had artifact synergies, so there was some other layer of interest other than just this card cycles and exiles cards from my opponent's graveyard. This card to me is just like one of those cards, but it has a lot more interest to it where that can become a giant threat. I have double fetch lands in my environment. Like graveyards get filled up very quickly, so it's not hard to imagine that this could become a 6-6 six, six, and 8-8 eight, eight, bigger than that. And almost any deck will be happy to play a card that could become that big, right? Like I'll play this in a control deck and then play a Snapcaster Mage and crew it and bash you for 10, right? That seems pretty fine to me. So I don't know. I don't know if it's going to be a cyborg card. I think I am going to start with the assumption that it is not a cyborg card. It's a main deckable card, and maybe you side it out depending on the matchup. Maybe other players that play my cube environment will think it is a cyborg card and will not play it thusly. So, so I'm not t- like totally rock solid about this one either, but I'm more optimistic than the other cards we've talked about for sure. Would you play this main deck in my cube? I, it doesn't really spark joy for me. I think it's just sort of like a thing that sits there and uh, I'm going to sort of just keep tapping it and then one day maybe attack with it. That's that last part that makes it exciting. Because, yeah. you know, Scrabbling Claws to me is that. It's like, 
but I love Scrabbling Claws. Do you really love Scrabbling yeah, Claws? I think it's, Scrabbling Claws is one of my favorite pieces of graveyard interaction, mostly because it's you not know, all just or nothing. It. It's not all or nothing. It's like a really nice, it's not a silver bullet, but if you can get it out early, it puts a really interesting sort of pressure on your opponent's graveyard, which I think is so cool. I mean, this is the exact same thing. This is also not a silver bullet, and also if you play it early, I mean, but it targets things, so you can't just you know get rid of every critical piece from a graveyard. That is true. Yeah, I mean, scrabbling claws, you can sacrifice it to target you get something. One time, yeah. You get one one shot of that, but mostly your opponent gets to choose. If anything, I'm a little skeptical of how much this chews through graveyards because another reason I've avoided scrabbling claws or relic of progenitus style effects, like I think a relic of progenitus or whatever will be an extremely potent sideboard card in my environment. I would not main deck a Relic of Progenitus, but against certain decks, it's just like your deck with Dragon's Rage Channeler and Murktide Regent and Treasure Cruise. Like, I'm just going to make all those cards awful now by having this card in my deck. That's maybe it's an exaggeration because you only get to pop it once and then, you know, stuff happens. But it feels like it would be a very potent sideboard card that would be like very frustrating to play against. This is somewhere in between. And so if anything, I'm a little hesitant to like have this much Grave Hate be colorless and have any deck have access to it but sure we'll see the last card is the card i'm actually excited about for my environment and i think has real potential for staying power and that's tenacious underdog it's one in a black for a creature human warrior it is a three two pretty good stat line already it has blitz for two black black and pay two life and remember blitz allows you to cast the card give it haste and give it when this creature dies draw a card and so it basically turns into like a one-shot attacker that then cycles itself. And you could also cast Tenacious Underdog from your graveyard using its Blitz ability. Interesting card. So you are probably not going to be blitzing it from your hand a lot, but it's just a really cheap, efficient beater, and then you just get to recast it. I keep reading this card and looking for then exile it if you do that, but you can just keep doing that over and over again, and it keeps drawing you cards, right? Yeah, the only downside here, like the the way they balance this, I believe, is just that you got to pay two life every time you blitz it. Right. So that is going to add up. Like, You're probably not that is doing 10% it more than 10 percent of your times. life total. So, yeah. like that is not nothing, and that's I think how this card was probably balanced in development. But yeah, that's the only downside here. Otherwise, I mean, I <laughs> I think it compares very interestingly to something like Cling to Dust, and I do not think it is only an aggro card. Even a, a control deck is like pretty happy to have a grindy way to draw cards for four mana as like a mana sink in the late game. And so, I don't think it's out of the question to play this in any kind of deck with any strategy as a way to basically just have a draw engine. And the fact that it is, on top of that, a pretty respectable aggressive creature for any proactive black deck, whether that's aggro, mid-range, or whatever, makes it a very appealing package to me. And I also have no fears about it being too good. Like, it's not going to be broken in my environment, I'm pretty confident in, that paying life is really going to matter. And two toughness on a two drop is, you know, powerful. Of course, it's going to die to shocks and, and the ilk and trade with a lot of things in combat. But this ability to just kind of have infinite gas for your aggro deck, I think is very interesting. It's also, I like a little a little taste of face-up information where you know your opponent always has this option now. So at the very least, you should plan for they can blitz Nature's Underdog from their graveyard. That's like the floor of the worst thing that's going to happen to me next, next turn. And when you're playing against that, you can it changes the way you make decisions as opposed to full hidden information. So right. I'm excited about the card, and I think a lot of other people are too. Yeah, I mean, just the, the fact that the floor is so high, I think it's going to make this a very appealing card for a lot of designers. Also, dude is hot. It's got like an 18 pack. I, I lost brass track. and brass knuckles in the boxing ring. I, that doesn't seem legit. I'm not sure this is a world of legit. So that's it for the Bun Magic Cube. That's five cards, two of which I'm really scraping because I want to get that beautiful Art Deco frame in there. Sticky Fingers, which I'm kind of like shrug. I have no idea, but I'm going to test it and find out. 
And then two cards I'm pretty optimistic about, but not a banner set for the but, but Magic Cube, it must be said. Yeah, I'm in a similar boat. I only have uh, seven cards here that I'm interested in for my regular cube. And I was a little bit surprised by that. When we had just looked at the mechanics, I was really excited about it. Yeah, me too. Well, I mean, I'm still excited about the mechanics. I think part of it is just that a lot of those mechanics, you know, we talked about what actually matters when it comes down to it is the individual card designs. Do these actually make sense? Like, it, it can be as cool a mechanic as you want, but you put on an eight mana spell that you're never going to be able to cast. It's not really going to uh, matter in a lot of cases. Yeah, it's not the mechanic anymore. It's a whole different thing. Right. And a lot of uh, these mechanics, just because there are so many in this set, they didn't go super deep in them, right? Yeah. I think that there is a lot more design space for all these mechanics. So I'd be curious to see maybe if they revisit some of these. Another thing is that this set is heavily, heavily gold. There are so many multicolored cards. And that I mean, it's true. like, I, I, I did the math and it's it's 30% of the set. That is wild compared to previous sets, which are usually around 12%. So those slots, I think, are a little bit harder to justify i think for you and me at least where we are currently as in our sort of cube design tastes Absolutely. so that just takes up a lot of space where i, I i'm interested in looking at the gold cards there is it's definitely a chance but i'm generally you know fighting myself to try and not put more gold cards into my main cube yeah i remember when we talked about blitz i said that i was going to be looking out for the cheapest blitz cards and we got two two mana blitz spells and that's it nothing at one mana and the two two mana ones not that appealing to me yeah, like we said, mechanics, I think, in theory, are great fits for my environment, but just the specific cards. It's like how you say that when you take a card and put it in a new cube, it's actually a new card now, right? Like what it does is always relative to the cube, and so you have to kind of evaluate it as a new card. Just like that, these mechanics are new mechanics for every card they're on, and the end result of the actual cards in the set just don't line up with my cube design goals or my power level I'm currently playing at. So I have a couple cards here for my main cube, my quote unquote regular cube. This is an environment that plays a little bit like a master set. It's relatively low power, focusing on creatures and combat and ideally relatively simple cards that offer a lot of strategic complexity. So different ways that you can combine these cards to have as many sort of novel different decks and board states and games as possible. So the first card I have is Illuminator Virtuoso. This is one in white for a human rogue. It's 1-1 uh, with double strike. And whenever it becomes the target of a spell you control, it connives, which means you draw a card and discard a card. And if you discarded a non-land card, put a 1-1 counter on this creature. I'm, I'm going to be honest. I'm a little bit worried about the power level, but as far as nah, the whole fine. package, this is kind of the perfect card for this environment because... I've kind of been looking for a Fencing Ace with a little bit more upside. Fencing Ace is just a 1-1 one, one with Double Strike for 2, and it doesn't quite get there on power level, but I love Double Strike because it interacts so well with anything that plus, scales plus with power. Counters, plus combat yeah, tricks, all that stuff. Absolutely. I've been looking for this card so much that I even tried uh, the Double Face card from the previous set, Innistrad, and I don't want, I don't like Double Face cards. <laughs> I want to get rid of it. So I'm going to give this a try. I do have a little bit of a heroic sub-theme and some counters themes. So I think this is going to be a great card for this environment. This is my favorite card with Connive in the set. And I had to say, uh, spoiler alert, I'm going to talk about the Combat Trick Mini Cube at the end of this episode. And that is the card I'm most excited for for that environment, too. That makes sense. Yeah. Next up, I've got Ledger Shredder. This is another one where I might be a little bit concerned about the power level, but I think it's worth I might giving share a try. Those concerns on that one. Okay, uh, so this is one in a blue for a one-three bird advisor. It's got flying, and whenever a player casts their second spell each turn, Ledger Shredder connives. So same thing—you get to loot, and if you discard it on land, it grows. 
I think this offers a lot of, uh, is interesting for a lot of the same reasons. There's also a little bit of a spells matter and, you know, cast your second spell or draw your second card per turn. So I think this is, again, a solid fit, but I am a little bit concerned this might be a little bit overpowered for the environment, but I'm curious to find out. Interestingly, this card is, I think, the only, we've gotten a lot of this cast two spells a turn trigger right. stuff in the past few sets. I think it's the only one I can think of that triggers when either player casts two right. spells. There's a lot that trigger when you cast two spells, your Blood Sky Berserkers, your Clarion Spirits, all that kind of stuff. Maybe there's some other cards out there I'm not thinking of, but this is going to be a thing you have to keep track of when your opponent double spells too. I don't know if for me that is upside or downside. It obviously makes the card more powerful. I like the idea that it actually forces both players to be aware and think about it and potentially actually change their sequencing plan. But also, it could I be annoying. don't love, yeah, that it could just be really annoying. Like, I guess I just won't double spell because I can't deal with a three power flyer in this current board state. That's the other thing about this card that, you know, I think this card is definitely powerful enough for consideration of the Bun Magic Cube, for example. But Oh, really? Oh, yeah, for sure. I just don't really want to have two four flyers poking around my environment. And this becomes that pretty easily, I think. I, I like fast games and the really defensive stat lines that are like make great blockers, I think, do slow down games pretty dramatically. Right. They tend to lead to board stalls. I guess a big question is, how often can you actually afford to be discarding non-land cards? Or do you really need to lean into the rummaging uh, and get rid of the the lands that you don't need late in the game? That is an open question with connive, but the fact that you, of course, get to choose in the given context. like Every single connive decision will be unique, and you'll get to decide, is it more important now to have a 2-4 flyer? Because my opponent's playing red and removing a 4-toughest thing is going to be really difficult for them to do. Or you could say it's important for you to hit your land drop so you can play this next threat that's going to be really important. The fact that you get that autonomy, I think, means that you're always going to get the best outcome, obviously, which I think makes the mechanic pretty powerful. Something that does make me think you're not going to be wanting to discard your non-land cards that often is Wharf Infiltrator, which was in this cube for a little while. And it, it it gives you a reward if you loot and discard a creature card. And you just ended up not doing that very often because you just couldn't really afford to disrupt your game plan that much. I think the bigger downside on Wharf Infiltrator is having to pay the two to make the token. Those two downsides combined, you've discarded gas. You basically like turned a card you discarded into a two mana three two. Right. So it's so, like a really easy trade off to think like, is this creature better or worse than a three two? And often the case was it was better. Yeah. I mean, because Wharf Infiltrator is a blue card. Your cube didn't have anything resembling blue aggro, which is where I want a vanilla three two most. And so... It wasn't like you were going to change your whole deck strategy just because you had a Warf Infiltrator to become an aggro deck, though maybe that's correct in some situations. And so it always felt bad to me mm-hmm. to discard my plan to do something that really wasn't my plan, which is, I think, why Warf Infiltrator didn't quite work. Yeah, I mean, and there's a lot more options with the Shredder where you can discard a Think Twice or uh, Sentinel's Eyes or all kinds of other, you know, non-creature spells that will still give you the counter and give you some more benefit in the graveyard. Next up, I've got Make Disappear. This is an instant for one and a blue. Counter target spell unless its controller pays two, and it's got casualty one. So it's basically a quench, but it has the option to double that. uh, Tax your opponent by four if you sacrifice a creature. I think I'm just going to swap this in for quench. It is a little bit of complexity, which maybe that complexity just doesn't really matter. And I definitely want to, I try to avoid complexity that doesn't matter as much as possible. I think it matters here. But I, I think it will be relevant I think Quench is totally fine in terms of power levels. That's another question. I don't know if I need to power up Quench, but I think this, my hope is that this will offer some interesting play decisions. I think this is a pretty modest upgrade on Quench, but one that'll be very relevant in your environment. You know, you don't have the hardcore control deck that's not playing creatures and just counting or removing all of your threats in the regular cube. So your blue decks are going to have creatures in play. Yeah, that's a great point. And, you know, like the connive decision, like 
if you if quench is good you just quench something obviously if you're in the situation where quench is dead it kind of feels bad and here having at least the option to trade a creature to actually counter the spell that's never going to be a blowout right like if you're trading a card and a creature there's nothing in your cube that is so good that if it resolves right now you know that's going to be a blowout on your on the make disappear caster side so i think it's a very reasonable upgrade and i think you know i would guess it's going to matter 20 percent of the time that's a pretty reasonable. I, I think, think an eighty twenty split's pretty good yeah. for for modal spells. I think twenty percent of the time you will have a real decision of like, do I casualty this? Do I not? And hope that I get to quench something on a later turn. I think it's going to come up. Yeah, I do also like that it just as a blue deck in a, an environment that cares a lot about creatures, just making you care about your creatures as a resource in a different way. I think is cool. I've got one black card I'm interested in. This is Refine Silencer. Two and a black for a human assassin. When it enters the battlefield, it connives. Uh, I think we've done that enough. And when it dies, target creature and opponent controls gets minus X, minus X until in turn where X is Rafine Silencer's power. This one I'm a little bit skeptical of. I do just really like that package of you have a lot of interaction in terms of the, the connive and then the fact that it may be difficult to block because it's going to trade up for something or use it in a deck that's sacrificing things to proactively try and destroy something. I'm not sure this is something that's going to make it long term, but I do like all these components together. This is another card that I think reads to me like a very defensive card. I think the best outcome for this is you play it on three, you connive and discard something and make it a 2-2. And then you get to, when your opponent attacks, trade with something that has two toughness and then also remove something else that has two toughness. Two toughness is pretty common stat line in your environment, and so... This is the thing it seems really hard to attack into, kind of like a Ledger Shredder. Yeah, which I, that's that's what I'm most skeptical of. If it's just a card that you get some play and just kind of gums up the board and you can't really find profitable attacks in a defensive deck, I think that's actually not going to be fun. So I think that's that's what I'm most skeptical about. I did here. look at this card briefly for the Combat Trick Mini Cube because the idea of, you know... You pump up its power and then... Give it yeah. a scale up or something and then just, you know, destroy some giant thing. But frankly, in that environment, there's not that many giant things to destroy anyway. Firmly medium. I've got two red cards. First one being Light em Up. This is a sorcery. One and a red to deal two damage to a creature or a planeswalker. And this has casualties to two. So if you sacrifice a creature, you can double it up and deal four damage to something or split that into two separate shocks. Is that an instant or a sorcery? It is a sorcery. Did I, mean, I say s- instant? No, you said it. I just I forgot and I wanted to clarify because that changes the valuation of the card pretty dramatically. It definitely does. Especially on the casualty cards because being able to sacrifice a creature in response to it getting removed or bad block or something, you know, sacrificing it during the declare blocker step makes the casualty way better. Here at sorcery speed, it's just much less powerful. Right. In terms of power level, I think this hits the balance correctly for this environment where two mana sorcery speed, two damage is definitely below rate. That's not really what where you want to be here. The casualty is a real cost. You know, you can't sacrifice a one one. You need a real creature to yeah, sacrifice. Two is big. And that but that option to be able to trade something that still maybe doesn't matter anymore for two of your opponent's creatures, I think that just is gonna set up a lot of interesting decisions. Yeah. I'm maybe a little skeptical of the power level here in the regular cube, maybe. This is a very interesting modal card, though, for sure. Like, if it's there on power level, I love the decisions it offers because it's either a two-mana removal spell for something small, fine, or it's almost kind of like bone splinters. Like, there's not a lot right, that's going yeah. to survive four damage in your environment. Again, the difference is you have to sacrifice something with at least two power, where bone splinters are often throwing away some dinky token. But, you know, it's going to be a hard removal spell almost all the time if you sacrifice a creature for a big thing. Or, like you said, you know, trading two for two, your removal spell plus a creature for two of their two toughness things. There's a lot of range in what it can possibly do. So I like those decisions that it offers. Yeah. 
Maybe another point against it is that currently the sort of red-black sacrifice theme is still a little bit overpowered, a little bit dominant, but what can you do? <laughs> it's unavoidable. <laughs> Nothing can be done. <laughs> uh, certainly not add Mayhem Patrol, which is my next card. Are all of these cards two mana? Did I only choose? We got one three you mana card. You love two drops. You know, two you. drops are, are it's just a great mana cost. <laughs> uh, so next up, I have Mayhem Patrol. This is one in red for a Devil Warrior. It has Menace. I love Menace too. Whenever it attacks, target creature gets plus one, plus O oh until end of turn. So effectively, it can always attack as a 2-2, but you can also move that power around a little bit. And it also has Blitz for one and a red. So same as its casting cost, but you can choose to give it haste and sacrifice it in exchange for a new card. Very similar to uh, Illuminator Virtuoso. Just hits on a lot of key points. It, it just offers a lot of different points of interaction, a lot of ways that it can matter and interact with different cards in terms of moving that power around, triggering things that care about second draw and things like that. Uh, again, a solid card for this environment. I thought of you in the regular cube as soon as I saw this card spoiled. Mm -hmm. It ticks every box for me of a thing that you'd be looking for in the regular cube. The menace is a great keyword. And like you said, I think all the modes are going to be relevant and almost in equal measure. If there's nothing else going on, you just play this on turn two, right? And you just start attacking. This is one of the two blitz cards that costs two mana to blitz. There's right. only two of them in the entire set. So it's the cheapest Blitz card out there. And that Blitz ability, like make a 1-2 token with haste, sacrifice it at, at the end step, get a combat trick, it's like plus one, plus oh, and draw a card. Like that's a lot for two mana. Like that's, there's a lot going on there. Great. Glad we're on the same page. This one you might have to talk me into. I'm a little bit skeptical, but I threw it on the list just so we could talk about it. Quick draw dagger. It's three mana for an equipment with flash. When the quick draw dagger enters the battlefield, attach it to target creature you control. So you get a free equip first time. It also gives that creature first strike until out of turn, and equip creature gets plus one, plus one, and equip one. So it's kind of just like a combat trick for three mana that gives a creature a permanent plus one, plus one, and first strike, which is a real combat trick. I think in this environment, that's very often going to be turning a combat and killing an attacking creature or a blocking creature. Then beyond that, you're left with a, sword, a short sword, one mana to give plus one, plus one. What do you think about this card? I mean, we should say, you don't love combat tricks, so let's consider that a big negative, but assuming you were interested well, in combat I tricks... Mean, be, again, I don't dislike interacting at instant speed during combat. I have tons of instant speed removal spells that do mm -hmm. that. I have no problem with that. I really like boosting the power and toughness of creatures, and I especially like doing it at sorcery speed with planeswalker activations or gift of the fae. So... I don't dislike that. One of the things I really dislike about combat tricks is the just being dead if you don't have a situation where you can turn it into one of these spells. And this being a reasonable equipment as a floor is fine. You get nothing else going on, you just play this out and, you know, maybe you don't get anybody with it, but... Right, it's still an extra damage and then you can move that equipment around later. And yeah. I, the equip one is really key. I Very really think important that, that makes equipment just play well when you can actually sequence moving your equipment around into your other parts of your game plan. I like the card. I like the play patterns it would lead to. I think it's a really nice way to get combat trick style abilities into the environment without having the dead in hand combat trick situations that I loathe so much. I, I think the equipment that auto equip when they enter the battlefield is a really great design space, which is why we've seen more and more of these come around. Early equipment, it was so difficult before they had this technology or before they had invented this mechanic where the equipment would auto attach on ETB. I think it was really difficult to balance the casting cost and the equip cost. Right. And very often, equipment that don't automatically equip have a very high risk front end. It's like, I got to play this card. It does nothing. I now have another artifact in play that's just sitting there. It doesn't do anything for my board. doesn't help me at all. And then at sorcery speed, I have to equip it, 
And that gives my opponent an opportunity to interact. It's like broadcast because I had to cast the card first. So unless I save up the mana to cast and equip it in the same turn, I can expect my opponent to be holding up removal for it. It just gets a little bit clunky. And so the equipment that automatically equips like this and all the Skyclaves, I, I was having a conversation in the Discord earlier and I was talking about Angel Fire Ignition, which is a card from Midnight Hunt. It's a, like a sorcery speed pump effect that also has flashback that puts counters in your thing, gives it a bunch of amazing keywords. And uh, someone was asking about the viability of this card. And I was like, I think it's good. And I compared it to Maul of the Skyclaves, which is a three mana card that gives the same power and toughness boost. That's an equipment that automatically attaches on ETB. And it's funny that people, I think, look at Maul of the Skyclaves, and, which has an equipability of four, costs four mana to equip it. And they're like, well, you know, this is lower risk because if my target gets removed in response to me casting it and it automatically equipping, then, you know, I still have my equipment in play. Whereas they look at something like Angel Fire Ignition and they say, well, this is highly risky because if they remove my target, then my spell fizzles. But it's got flashback, which is the same cost as the equip cost on all the Skyclaves. I, I like this space because it makes equipment play more the first time you cast it like a combat trick kind of thing. And so giving this one flash too is also great. It will allow you to actually... Well, I guess you need other things to do at instant speed. If you have enough stuff to do at instant speed, you can actually wait to cast this until you have an opportunity to benefit from that first strike and plus one, plus one to, to get him with a combat trick without having to just run it out, which is what you have to do with most equipment. So I think it's a cool card. I don't love the art. I have mixed feelings. It kind of looks like a little mini sort of body in mind, but I don't know about this guy's grin. So that's everything I've got for the regular cube. Not a ton of things, but I think a couple of these are going to be really solid includes that are going to stay in the cube for a long time. You did it in color order. What are the ones you're most excited about? I think I'm going to say Mayhem Patrol and Illuminator Virtuoso. All right, next up, we got a couple of treats in this set for the Degenerate Micro Cube. This is my extremely high powered, extremely unfair cube that only requires you to build decks of 15 cards at minimum. So that means that your combos are extremely reliable and you get to do your unfair thing every single game, basically. From this set, there are three cards that I think are genuinely worth consideration for the Degenerate Micro Cube, which doesn't come up very often. It's a small cube and it's really pushed in terms of power level. The one that's most suspect and I'm curious about is Scheming Fence. This is a white and a blue for a creature, human citizen. It's a two, three. As Scheming Fence enters the battlefield, you may choose a non-land permanent. Activated abilities of the chosen permanent can't be activated and Scheming Fence has all activated abilities of the chosen permanent except for loyalty abilities. You may spend mana as though it were mana of any color to activate those abilities. It's a lot of text for what amounts to like a plussed up Phyrexian Revoker, basically. But in this environment, Phyrexian Revoker is really good. I also play Pithing Needle. I also play Sorcerer's Spyglass. There are extremely important activated abilities that it's very important to be able to blank because it is such a combo-oriented environment. So having another option to... Blank activated abilities could be very relevant. Turns off Planeswalkers. And the upside of maybe giving this thing the activated abilities could be relevant too. I don't know where that's going to come up, but I'm high enough on that effect in the Degenerate Micro Cube that when a card is printed that has those words on it, I'm like, all right, well, maybe you got to give this a shot. I'm glad you brought this card up just because I think it's so cool. I agree. The first thing I thought of as well was Revoker, but the the fact that you can actually steal that ability is just such a cool and, and unique mechanic that... I think is going to be really exciting in certainly, if not this environment, in some environments. What is different, though, is that unlike Phyrexian Revoker, the thing actually has to be in play, which talking about power level, yeah, I think that, that makes is very true. much less uh, effective in this particular environment where often once they get the you know two things in play, they just kind of do the thing and you're out of luck. Yeah, like you're not going to be able to very many times turn off Bomberman with this because right. 
the turn you play your RX salvagers is oftentimes the turn you go off. And if you try and name a pyrite spell bomb or a walking ballista if it's already in play, they can just bin it in response to you casting this thing. So you don't have the option to name that. That is a very real downside. And the, you know, the gold cost is relevant. So I'm not particularly optimistic, but I'm gonna test it and see how it goes. I also like unlicensed Hurst here. That might be a bridge too far in terms of graveyard removal in this environment. I do have Scrabbling Claws here. It's very, very good. It's a very high pick because, because of a small deck size, a lot of decks do reshuffle their graveyard into their library to kind of reset things. And so Scrabbling Claws is a very potent way to stop that strategy from working. And Unlicensed Hurst is even more potent at that. But that said, I am very excited to have another card that is that utility and also a threat, especially for Shops decks. Shops is my favorite architect to draft in this cube. And just the idea of, you know, playing an Unlicensed Hearse on turn one off of Shops alongside something else, uh, like an Aether Vial, and then you just start going off. It's just very, very pleasing to me. So I think it could work out here. We'll see. I wonder how high the ceiling is actually going to be in practice, just because there's so few cards that are actually in the game, you're not going to be able to activate it nearly as many times. I mean, the ceiling is still quite high, I think. I mean, you're going to have five lands in your deck on average, I would say, maybe even four. Mm -hmm. And those are the cards you could least expect to hit the bin. But everything else could very reasonably hit, hit, hit the bin over the course of the game. And so that's plenty high ceiling for, I think, killing your opponent. The last card, I think, is a slam dunk staple Cannot imagine cutting this for a long time. It's an offer you can't refuse. One blue mana for an instant. Counter target non-creature spell. Its controller creates two treasure tokens. I think this is going to get a lot of attention just because it is, uh, it's a spicy card. It's very cheap. It does a lot of powerful things and has a really meaningful downside. Yeah, a one mana hard counter is fantastic for non-creature spells. This is a combo-oriented environment, so being able to stop the thing when the thing is about to happen is critically important. And I play a lot of other cards that have bigger downsides if they allow you to stop the thing when the thing is about to happen. Also, this environment, I don't see the treasure being as big of a downside as in a regular cube environment. Because, again, this cube is so degenerate that, like, tempo is not a thing. Like, giving your opponent a little bit of ramp doesn't really matter. All that matters is that your answers line up with their threats in a way that you come out on top in the game. I guess, like, the worst case scenario is, like, your opponent casts Aether Vial you an offer you can't refuse it because you're a control deck and you can't beat a resolved either vial then they get to treasure and play dahlia immediately like that's pretty bad and that's where the downside is going to matter so maybe in those matchups where your opponent is playing hate bearers or proactive creatures that slow your deck down that's going to matter but a lot of the times it's going to be just a hard counter and really strong for this environment so i'm pretty excited about that one you want to talk about the stupid turbo cube? Of course. I, this is what I look forward to most. And I suspect there are many listeners that also look forward to this most. Once you've played the turbo cube, it is a lens. I look at every single card in spoiler season through and I can't not do it. It, it really, truly breaks your brain. At least that's been that's been my experience. So I actually only have two cards that I'm interested in for this describe environment. Describe the cube first. Uh, yeah, that's a really important cube to describe. So this is a, a unique novel, a novelty environment where all spells and abilities, activated abilities specifically, cost two generic mana less to cast. So we have lots of super moxin that draw you cards and cantripping rituals and aggro decks that can just dump their hand and attack for lethal on turn one. All kinds of silly stuff. It's uh, great. I love it. You can look through any set and just look for anything that costs like two generic mana and one more mana is going to be a powerful card here, as is anything that just costs two generic mana. But there are only two things I found that I'm interested in testing from this particular set. The first one being Devilish Valet. So this is two and a red, critical mana cost. It's a Devil Warrior with Trample and Haste. It is a 1-3. Whenever another creature enters the battlefield under your control, double Devilish Valet's power until end of turn. 
it is really fun to draft aggressive decks in this environment where you can just, like I said, you know, you play Burgi and then play a, an egg and then dump your whole hand and attack for lethal. So having Trample and Haste and the ability to just trigger this a whole bunch of times all in one turn uh, by casting a bunch of creatures is pretty exciting. I missed this one when I was thinking about this set for wow. Turbo Cube, but you're right. Like, there are definitely hands where you'll be able to pay your one red mana to play this on turn one and then play a bunch of colorless creatures that are free to cast yep. and like bash for 10 or I mean, what, how does it scale up? So it goes one to two, uh-huh. two to four, mm-hmm. four to eight. So you can bash for 16, I think, pretty reasonably on yeah, turn no one problem. with this card. And so just, you know, combine that with anything else. And you're in a pretty good spot. I like that. I I missed that one, but that's a really sweet inclusion here. I almost overlooked it as well. And then I mean, the haste is really haste the critical. Haste is so thing. important. The other card I'm I'm going to throw in, which I'm I think is going to be awesome as well, is even the score. This is instant for. This is going to be a weird cost for this environment. Costs X blue blue blue. It says draw X cards, but it also costs blue 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 less to cast if an opponent has drawn four or more cards this turn. So if your opponent has drawn four or more cards, which that happens pretty much all the time. I would time. say most turns. Most turns, most decks this draw is, four This is an cards. instant. X is going to be two with the reduction. Uh, so if you have no mana and your opponent draws four cards, you can just draw two cards. Uh, so a free divination, I think, is what this is going to be. A lot of the ter- time, you're just going to start your turn with nine cards in hand, and that's going to be great. Yeah, I think this is this is just going to be a slam dunk. If you have some extra mana, you could even potentially spend more than that, but we'll see how often that happens. This one I don't love as much because it does feel kind of like a gotcha card. But they're always going to draw four cards, so it's not like... Well, it's, it's going to feel bad when you can't do it, like when they don't draw four cards. And That's you're like, fair. they're just dumping all their mana into their Jade Mages, and now mm-hmm. this card is yep. like kind of uncastable for me. Would you play around this game two if you saw it game one? No. Yeah, it's Turbo Cube. <laughs> it's Turbo Cube. There's no playing around to happen. We're not doing that here. It is definitely much more powerful in your opening hand than late in the game. It's interesting how there's there's actually not as abundant card advantage as you might expect because, you know, we don't have these slow games with Planeswalkers drawing extra cards. and It's largely one-for-one. It's Yeah, it's largely one-for-one. Yeah, you're casting a cantrip. You're casting cycling or cycling things for free. So I think that this is actually just going to be a very relevant ability that you actually do want to just have ways to generate card advantage. But you're right that if people just dump their hands turn one and then you draw this later in the game, you might just not be able to cast it, which, yeah, that's a real downside. Can I not interest you in a Halo Scarab? I'll read the rules text. This is two generic mana for a 2-1 artifact creature insect. Activated ability to exile Halo Scarab from your graveyard to create a treasure token. In the Turbo Cube, this is a 0 mana 2-1 that has for free exile from your graveyard to make a treasure token. You might try. Yeah, sell me on it. I, I, <laughs> it's a free it creature. Don't cost, it, does, it costs it nothing cost to do anything. Any, I mean, I've said before that in the Turbo Cube, I will take almost anything I don't have to pay mana for over almost anything I do have to pay mana for. And... That may not be correct. I, I you know, have a fine win rate in the Turbo Cube, but it's not like I win every single time. To me, it's like, that's what the cube is about. I want to cast things for free. And in some ways I like it because it's just like, it's a fair creature. Like it's a, you know, I, I really like playing, uh, you have Vault Scourge and a couple other just like dinky little creatures that are free in that environment. And sometimes you just get a hand where you're like, I'm just going to play these like two ones and attack you. And that's going to be how I win the game. And sometimes you have the hands where you go off and you have sigh and then you turn your, little artifact creatures that are otherwise just threats into like synergy pieces because you do have a lot of things that care about artifacts in this environment. This to me feels that's a lot really nicely. It's like sometimes just kind of a fair threat that makes the game a little more reasonable and more like resembling regular magic. And sometimes you get to do the full synergy thing at a very low risk. That's fair. I mean, part of the challenge is there are just so many of these cheap 
little artifacts that we can put in this cube at this point that eventually we're going to hit a density where we just don't need more of them. I actually think what I dislike about this is that sometimes you're going to want that treasure is really what you're going to want, but you're not going to have a way to get in the graveyard. So I think that just reading this is a little bit less exciting than I want it to be. It would be cool if it had a way to like sacrifice itself for some right, dinky right, right. little effect, and then you could also give the treasure token. I agree. You you might be talking talking me into it just because it is powerful to have free spells. Uh, so maybe we just need to find more cuts. The other thing I thought you were going to mention is I forget the name of the card, the Demon Horns, the Ominous Parcel. So this is one generic mana for an artifact. Pay two, tap and sacrifice it. Search your library for a basic land card, reveal it, and put it into your hand. Then shuffle. It also has five and tap. Uh, Sacrifice Ominous Parcel deals four damage to target creature. This would obviously also be very powerful, and maybe I'll change my mind on it, but similarly, there's just so many of these kinds of Mm -hmm. effect, and in this environment, I've actually found them to be a little bit less important or less powerful than I thought, specifically because, well, first of all, there's a lot of them. We have a lot in the environment already, and you just don't end up putting very many basics in your deck. You have like yeah. maybe two basic lands in most non-green decks. That's the thing for me is that that puts me off of this card. And to be fair, I think from a cube design perspective, I could imagine a future where you put more effects like this in over some of the other effects to intentionally give decks that choose to play more basics an edge. Because I know sometimes you do like those decks that are doing something a little more fair or unfair in a different way than just casting a bunch of free spells and cycling for free. So if you ever wanted that, you have this card here for you. But... Yeah, I've actually just started taking those cards very low. They're one of yeah. the only free effects that I'm like, I'm probably not going to be doing that. Even like our Millery Sphere, which gets you two lands for free, is just like, eh, I really need my dual lands so I can actually cast my yeah. spells and these basics aren't doing a lot. So I like having some some amount of those kinds of effects, but I think, I think we're good. The, the other card I was going to mention was the Hearse. So the Hearse, obviously, it's got a lot of twos in it, which is, which is a key feature. Just the one two. I think it's too slow. The only reason I brought it up is that there are a fair number of graveyard synergies, so it's not like it would just be a threat that grows, and that's the whole point of it. It's a it's a playable grave hate spell that also has this additional upside. That is true. I just I do like vehicles when you can fit them in incidentally. Like, yeah. If the vehicle does something without having to be crude, then I'm very attracted to vehicles because it's a very cool card type that just allows you to like play a thing that has effective haste because you crew it and then get to attack with your vehicle. It like changes the way combat works. So. That was the other card I expected you to maybe bring up was the curse. I, I, I'll think about it more. It's it's not a Reckoner Bank Buster, but it does do stuff. No, Bank Buster is bank busted in this environment. I want to speed run my Combat Trick Mini Cube very quickly. I say speed run because we've talked about most of the cards already that I'm considering for inclusion. This is another one of my experimental cubes that plays with the minimum required deck size. And here, the minimum deck size is 24 which is actually a size I've been very happy with in the cubes I've played with it because it's not so small that in most games, decking becomes a problem. Like in the generic micro cube where your deck size is only 15, the game largely becomes about what's going to happen when I run out of resources. In this environment with 24, I've found decking is not really an issue and it allows you to, again, just have a little more focused synergistic deck that you would have in 40 card decks. So in this environment, I support a death shadow aggro. And so that has me interested in shadow of mortality which is 13 and 2 black, 15 total mana. For a creature avatar, it's a 7-7. And it says, if your life total is less than your starting life total, this spell costs X less to cast, where X is the difference. A variation on a Death Shadow style creature. My question for you, Anthony, why is the rules text written like this? Why doesn't it just say cost X less to cast, where X is the difference between your starting life total 
And well, because you don't want to make it more expensive if you gain life. Oh, I suppose. Okay. <laughs> I guess. I think I think that would happen. I don't know. Magic rarely deals with negative numbers in costs. Yeah, that would be I'm not, maybe that is what it is. Maybe that's what it comes down to. I think this is quite a bit worse than Scourge of the Skyclaves and Death Shadow. They did add another black pip, which makes a big difference. That makes a big difference. The other thing that makes a big difference is like you just actually can't cast this for a long time. And the thing about Death Shadow is you can cast it as a two-two. You don't have to be at a super low life total to cast it. So you can cast it pretty early and then grow it over the course of the game, whereas this just kind of sits in your hand until you get get your hand size pretty small. So I'm not optimistic about it, but again, like that's an archetype I support in this cube, and I saw that card and was like, well, that was clearly meant for this archetype. I wonder if it fits. Not super optimistic. Next up, Boon of Safety. This is a combat trick for the combat trick cube. It is one white mana for an instant. Put a shield counter on target creature and scry one. This to me is just a nice side grade from God's Willing, which is a card that gives a creature protection from the color of your choice until end of turn and scries one for the same mana cost. Just because I think I like shield counters more than protection. I like that you could just cycle it, you know, at the end of turn, even if you don't need to protect it right now because that shield counter is going to persist. And I like it because protection is not my favorite kind of mechanic and this is going to right. allow it to interact with any like i don't like the idea of me using god's willing to make a thing unblockable because my opponent's creatures happen to all be the same color right i like it better Ooh. as a defensive as a defensive treat and so boon of safety does that a little more cleanly for me with this new mechanic scry with this new mechanic <laughs> <laughs> with this new mechanic scry one with this new mechanic shield counters I like it more because sometimes what you want in that environment is just to cast more spells. You just need to right. target something to make a token or whatever. So sometimes uh, God's Willing literally just says target creature because that's all you care about. And you're kind of letting the protection just you're just throwing that away. Yep. So the fact that you can if you just need to cast a spell and then you still get the shield counter, which lasts until the next turn, you're still getting that value in the context where you just need to cast spells. Seems like a much better fit. Yep, I like it. I think it's an improvement from play pattern perspective over God's Willing. The last three cards we've talked about already. I want to try Sticky Fingers here too. I do have things to care about Heroic. I also have things to care about Instants and Sorceries, and this is not one of those. And that might be like in an environment where targeting your creatures is always good. There's a lot of cards that can do it. I don't know if this competes with things like Expedite, which I think is just a better card in this environment probably because you're not often going to go to a grindy long game. But I'm going to try it anyway. I got Broker's Ascendancy in the list here. I do have like a full hardened scale support in this cube. And the thing I'm worried about about Broker's Ascendancy is that in a 24 card deck, having hardened scales and Broker's Ascendancy, two cards that both require you to have not just creatures, but creatures that have plus one, plus one counters on them or a creature and a spell that puts plus one, plus one counters on things. It's just a lot of uh, potential bad opening hands where it's like, I got my lands and my spells, but I've only got the one creature and hardened scales and, bro- and broker's ascendancy. And if they have a removal spell, then I'm just sitting here doing nothing. So I'm going to try it, I think, because I have enough things to care about plus one, plus one counters that you can really dramatically go off with broker's ascendancy with things like winding constrictor and conclave mentor, which is the green white winding constrictor variant. You'll just be able to like play Broker's Ascendancy and make a gigantic board immediately. And that's part, part of what this cube is about, doing really kind of splashy, powerful things. So I'm going to try it out, but might be a little bit too risky when your opponent does have interaction. And then the last card we've already talked about, Illuminator Virtuoso. This is the two-mana double striker with uh, Connive. And very excited about that for this cube. That's going to be, I think, a staple of this cube for a long time. The fact that you get to chew through your deck with the Connive ability, uh, I think is very relevant here. 
I am excited to use that to discard other spells that are not one mana cantrips that will allow me to keep conniving and kind of turn into a little chain where I just pop off with this huge double striker. And double strike is a ability I'm always looking to slide into this environment because I do have a lot of combat tricks and they play really well with it, obviously. They sure do. Is that a wrap, Anthony? I've got one more bonus card. Oh, right. You have your little bonus. I forgot. Just a little treat. A little aperitif. So I, I want to talk about one more card just because this is a very different kind of card that we wouldn't usually talk about. But I do have a multiplayer cube that I've been sort of on the back burner for a while, but uh, I'm interested in getting that finished up in paper. Uh, and I'm really excited about one card that they printed for that environment specifically. Uh, so this is a multiplayer designed for multiplayer to be drafted and played in a four player free for all. And specifically, I want to try and sort of fight against some of the things that I don't love about Commander. So I want combat to matter. I want people to be interacting as much as possible. It's not just about solitaire games, which can happen sometimes in multiplayer formats. I'm really interested in the card Public Enemy. This is two and a blue for an enchantment. It enchants a creature and all creatures attack enchanted creatures controller each combat if able. Uh, And when enchanted creature dies, draw a card. So this is kind of just like a way to goad all of your opponent's creatures and just say, everybody's got to attack this one player. You are enchanting a specific creature, but it's really having an effect on that player and forcing everybody to get into combat more. Obviously, it's likely that that player is just going to block with that creature. So it might be probably on function the first more of just a removal spell, but it gives you the card back and still forces one attack. So I think this is perfect in terms of like looking for cards that let you shape combat in different ways. A very cool politics card. I agree. As the owner of a mono red deck that largely wants to go creatures, <laughs> I'm offended by the fact that for two and a blue, you can go to every creature indefinitely. Uh-huh. That, uh huh. You just got to put this on a creature that can't block and then, you know, exactly, game yeah. over. <laughs> put it on a creature with shadow. That's it. I'm offended by that, but uh, I think the card is very cool and has a lot of interesting multiplayer politics involved. I do think that most often in most games, what it's going to be is the next player must all in attack the controller of the creature you've enchanted. And they're going to lose that creature that you want to get rid of. And you're going to draw a card, which is really good. Like, that's, I think, the like normal case, probably. And it's a very good case, I think. Yeah, I mean, in, in that situation, if somebody has a bunch of small creatures, they might also be forced to make very unprofitable attacks and, you know, chump attack into the other larger creatures, which are potentially in play. So, yeah, that's I mean, thing. Sticking on a big creature could also be relevant because yeah. you're just basically abyssing every single one of your opponents right, every right. turn. You must well, something. Well, also abyssing yourself, but yes. Okay, well, three mana for the Abyss that draws a card if the Abyss would leave play. I'll play it. Yeah. That is it for our personal cube additions. Thank you for tuning into this episode of Lucky Paper Radio. Make sure to fill out that survey on luckypaper.co slash survey slash SNC. There'll be a link in a banner on all the pages anyway, and you'll find it in the show notes, so we make it very easy for you. That survey is going to dictate what cards we talk about in our third and final set review episode for Streets of New Capenna, which is the community set review. Again, that'll be coming to you in a few weeks. 25 weeks to KubeCon, Anthony. Speaking of weeks. I'm so excited. Have you submitted any of your cubes for potential review? <sighs> so I do not want to travel. It's, it's too late if, if you haven't. Yeah, I do not want to travel with my primary cube. I have a big, big fancy wooden box for it. It's like fairly valuable and i just i would be i would be stressed out traveling with it even though it's insured and everything it would not be fun for me so i did not submit that one i wanted to submit the degenerate micro cube but uh because this event does have some official connection to wizards and i do not own a bizarre of baghdad or misha's workshop i cannot submit it for official consideration i think i am planning on bringing the degenerate micro cube with me though we can organize some ad hoc drafts 
potentially with some lucky paper listeners and uh, play that cube out there. I'm sure people will be excited. That one's nice and compact too. Travel's really nice. Yeah. Nice little small box. That's it for this episode of Lucky Paper Radio. All of our music is produced by DJ James Nasty. All the magic cards are produced by Wizards of the Coast. This podcast was produced by Anthony and I speedrunning our personal cube editions a mere 12 hours after the full set spoiler came out so I would have time to edit it before the release on Monday. Thanks for doing that, Anthony. Man, they keep just putting so much text on these cards. I I read all of that text and it's so much. <laughs> See, I didn't because if it costs four more mana... You I really read just, like, just a little bit. I was like, I, got, I read enough to like make sure that there was nothing hiding in there for me. I, I did appreciate there were a couple like very symmetrical cycles of cards. And once you hit one of those, you're like, great. This is like reading five cards at once. Love it. I think we should plan to, on our community set review, talk about some of the themes that emerge that are non-mechanical. Yeah, I have a list of those, which I, when we had talked about uh, the, the formal mechanics, only a couple cards have been previewed, yeah, we so we didn't go deep into this. But yeah, I want to talk about this new kind of threshold where the number of mana values of the mm-hmm. cards in your graveyard matters. That's an interesting one to me. There's a couple of other little mechanics that have popped up that uh, I think will be interesting to talk about. Mm-hmm.